welcome to another episode of Unscripted, and I have the great pleasure to introduce Martin Bialchuk. Thank you very much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing good, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, you know, while we're setting this up, I could tell you're you're you are a pro. You don't leave anything to chances. You are, you know, I like to say the devil's in the details. You made sure you have enough, uh, you know, enough space on your on your machine. It's plugged in and so on, which is. In cybersecurity, I think one of the one of the areas that we have to we have to be cognizant of is the the attention to details. So why don't we kind of walk me through to just to get started and warm up uh, because this is going to be completely unscripted. Let's walk through kind of the the inception how you got started in cybersecurity. Yeah, sure. It's it's actually an interesting interesting story. Um, I kind of knew early on that I wanted to get into cybersecurity, but it didn't really know how. So when I was in college, um, I was majoring in management information systems, taking a lot of computer classes and stuff like that, and was looking for that first job. And I started applying to just various companies <clears throat> using monster.com, which I don't know if that's still around or not, but I ended up applying to this one company for actually a sales position out of all, all things. And uh, the recruiter called me back and said, hey, you applied for this position. We want you to come in for an interview. And honestly, I, I applied to so many companies at that point, I wasn't even sure who, <laughs> which company it was. So I came in um, for an interview for the sales position at a company called Integralis in East Hartford, Connecticut. Um, and they were basically standing up um, some junior sales roles for um, this cybersecurity company. And I, I did pretty good at that interview. And um, the guy that was interviewing me said, well, you know, you seem pretty technical. Would you be interested in applying for this other engineering position that we have on the other side of the house? It's a professional services engineer um, position. And I think you'd be interested in, uh, in that position as well. So I ended up interviewing for that position on the same day. And I had a choice which way to go. Do I want to go sales or do I want to go engineering? And my heart was in the engineering side, so I decided to, to go that way. And that's kind of how I got started. I worked as a junior professional services engineer at Integralis for, um, it was like two or three years. Um, got a lot of experience in kind of hands-on configuring firewalls and setting up all kinds of network security devices and really getting a lot of hands-on experience that I didn't get at school um, and got my start there. Um, then I had an opportunity that came up at a company called Cigna, healthcare company out of Connecticut that had a leadership development program. And so I applied for the lead leadership development program. I had a couple of friends that were part of that program. So they helped get me in there. And the thing I liked about that program is it let me rotate around the company and try different things. So going in, I knew I wanted to get into cybersecurity and that's what I told the, um, the manager there is I eventually want to work in cybersecurity, but they kind of told me, hey, you know, we'll get you there, but why don't you try a couple different things while you're here? So I ended up getting into um, application, kind of the application development team doing release management. I worked on the network team for a year and then finally got into cybersecurity working in the SOC over at Cigna. And I think having that experience of trying different things and getting to learn the business was very helpful early on in my career. It, it, it's such a cool story and I can totally relate. I can tell you that my first job 
after college was also through Monster. So yeah. I can tell you that. And uh and it was also to uh you know to a new start you know startup uh VAR that was just starting out back in the day in Toronto. But it, it's really remarkable. What do you think that specifically they liked about you and saw kind of the technical aspect? Like in your first, you know, first interview that you had you know, since it was kind of a, a sales role, but then I'm assuming some something that you said or the way you conveyed yourself uh, alluded to you being more technical. Do you remember what it was? I think it was a couple of different things, but I think maybe one of them was that I was willing to do pretty much anything to get started. Um, nothing was beneath me. And, you know, I had a lot of jobs before then that were not technical. They were not in my in my field. I mean, I've done everything from I was a truck driver at one point and I worked in a gas station and I've done all kinds of other jobs, you know, throughout college to pay for school. You know, I joined the military. I was in the army for a little while. Um, but, you know, at the interview, I, I kind of made it clear that I was willing to do anything to kind of get my foot in the door. And so that junior professional services engineer position required a lot of things that um, not everyone was willing to do. So part of it was traveling. And as a young person back then, not having a wife and kids and all that, I had a little bit more flexibility. So I was able to travel a little bit more. Um, I supported all the appellate courthouses in Pennsylvania. Anytime they had issues with their firewalls and needed to have a, a firewall switched out, I would drive out there, I would pack a firewall into my trunk and drive out and do the swap out um, <clears throat> so being able to do that um, but it also gave me an opportunity to learn a lot I was responsible for the lab at Integralis we had a lab that um, we would use to mock up customer environments and test out different products and so I used that opportunity to learn as much as I could everything from configuring switches and routers to deploying, you know, agents and setting up domains and all the kind of stuff that, again, I really didn't really have hands-on experience at school. I did a lot of book work at school, but um, at least when I was going to school, a lot of the hands-on stuff was missing. So that first role was very instrumental in me learning a lot of that hands-on stuff that kind of carried over into my other positions later on. And, and Martin, if I can double-click on it, it's essentially... The fact that you exhibited a, a can-do attitude, meaning that you were right there and then you were, you were seemed like a person who can take ownership over a role that wasn't easy and just do whatever it takes, whatever the company needed. And it's and I I believe today, you know, if you look at a lot of job seekers out there today, especially ones that are just coming out of school uh, with not a lot of experience, I think a lot of them have uh this misconception or almost like self you know sense of entitlement they want to get like a good role somewhere and i always preach hey just get any role you know get in any role especially in a smaller company where you can get your 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 feet wet um you know get dirty into into all kinds of different roles like different tasks and just do whatever it takes and then the opportunities will, will present itself and I think that is sometimes more important than your formal education, your certification, your boot camp that you've done. I think the attitude uh, carries uh, a long way. Would you agree? 
Absolutely. I mean, it's a give and take relationship, right? So in a lot of these junior positions, um, the employer is hiring you um, to take on a job, but at the same time, part of your pay is the experience that you're gaining. Um, I had a lot of junior people working for me throughout my career, and it does take some time and effort to help train them and kind of guide them along the way, and that's part of their pay. They might not be making as much money monetarily. Their salary may, may not be very high early on, but the, the knowledge and the skills that you gain and the experience and the connections that you make early on more than makes up for what would be perceived as a lower salary early on in your career. So you got to look at it that way is you are providing something for your employer and you have to give 110%, especially early on in your career. And at the same time, you're gaining a lot. You're gaining those connections. And the better job that you do early on, the more connections you have and the more people can recognize your skills. Because later on, you'll have those connections that will help pull you up the ladder. They'll look at you and they'll say, hey, David, I remember when you were kind of early on in your career, you did a really good job. You never complained. You worked hard. You continued to develop yourself. And hey, I, I happen to have this position on my team now. Would you like to come interview? That, that's happened a lot in my career. And, and I've, I've afforded that opportunity to people that I know in my past as well, people that I know are dependable and that work hard and that will get the job done. Absolutely. And I would also mention the fact that you had experience doing other jobs that weren't easy. It's not easy to be a truck driver. It's not easy to work at a gas station. That will give you some perspective. It's almost like I've heard an interview with uh, with uh, Schwarzenegger and he was saying like how he was always smiling at the gym, even though he had to lift like heavy weights. And he goes, well, what's, what's the alternative? I have my classmates in high school. They're working the mines, you know, so so anything beats that if you look at what the alternatives are you know you sit in front of a computer maybe yeah you have to work long hours maybe yeah you have to travel but your your prospects of success and in becoming something of yourself are greater than just being you know doing some manual labor uh somewhere and so everything beats that so the fact that you had that experience doing something else and allows you to have some perspective in terms of what needs to, to be done in order for you to be successful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you learn a lot from those earlier um, jobs, even if they seem menial. Um, you learn things like customer service, how to deal with customers, how to deal with your colleagues, conflict resolution, and all kinds of other stuff that, like I said, carries on later on, um, you know, how to, how to manage your time, how to manage projects. All that stuff you learn throughout your work career, even if you don't think it applies then and there, a lot of that carries on into later later jobs that you have. And additionally, um, it, I think it makes you a little bit more humble later on in your career. You know, once you become a manager or a director or vice president, even a, a business owner yourself, you look back at, and you look at the people that work for you at some of those lower positions. And you remember when you were kind of lower on the totem pole and you have a little bit more respect for those folks. Um, so I think having that experience early on really helps throughout your career. Yeah, I'm nodding vigorously because I, I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I'm, I'm in the whole agreement we would just mentioned. It's it's so important. And it seems like, again, I think if you look at today, you know, a lot of younger, uh, younger folks, it's almost like beneath them. They don't want to do some of these, these jobs. They want to just, again, just go in 
uh, wear a nice set of clothes and just, you know, go on a computer. And I think that's part of the problem is also if you look at the bulletin boards of, of somebody's uh, IT training, it always shows somebody who's, you know, sooner out of after college or after the, the boot cameras, you know, wearing this nice shirt and it's like, on a, on a laptop, you know, coding away somewhere. And it's it's not necessarily, I mean, yeah, it might be the case, but it's also better to have the other perspective of, of uh, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, being a little dirty, doing some work that is manual and potentially has some, uh, some physical difficulties or um, have a lot of moving parts, like you mentioned, dealing with people and so on. Um, and if you look back in your career path, you mentioned there was one point where you kind of convert into cybersecurity, and I, I feel that there's always, um, you know, a fork in the road that you pick that really propel you to kind of the next level. Do you know? Can you pinpoint in your career path, like the in terms of trajectory, what really made it for you? Yeah. So I think there's there's a lot of forks in the road if if I look back. And I think a lot of people have these opportunities, you know, that are presented to them, and it's on them to kind of either capitalize on that opportunity or pass it by. And throughout my career, I've always tried to capitalize on every opportunity that I that I've been given. But Martin, so, sometimes, sometimes you don't know not to, and I apologize to cut you off, but sometimes when an opportunity presents itself, it's not totally clear that it's an opportunity. And I think that's what people are missing. A lot of times it might be disguised itself as something else. Even some people get laid off or something happened, they have to change careers. And at a time, it seems like a, like a miserable, you know, and then all of a sudden it converted into an opportunity that they, couldn't, they didn't see before. Would you agree? Right, I agree. And sometimes those opportunities uh, might not be comfortable right off the bat. So for example, when I was working at Cigna, you know, I was in this leadership development program. I finished the program and I posted out into basically a full-time role, even though I was working full-time, but let's call it a full-time employee role. And I was doing good. I was a great employee. I was well-liked by my peers. Um, and I had room for growth within Cigna, but another opportunity came up at a company called Boston Scientific that was very early on in their security program. Um, they didn't have much of a security program at that time. And so I had an opportunity to, well, I had a kind of a fork in the road, like you mentioned. I can either stay at Cigna and be comfortable, and maybe I'll still be working there today, or I can go down this uncomfortable road um, and, and start something different, something new and different, which is build out a security program from the ground up. Um, not everyone's down for that. You know, it, it is risky, right? You're going into an environment you're not familiar with. There's a lot of work ahead of you, but it is an opportunity because it gives you a different path to go down and a potential for growing your career much faster than the path that you're currently on. And so that's the path I chose. I ended up going to Boston Scientific, working there for five years and building out their security program and learning a lot more than if I had stayed at Cigna. That's one of the things that I always look at when, when I'm entertaining new opportunities is, does it take me outside of my comfort zone? And will it potentially provide me with more of a runway in the long term? And in, in when you evaluate that, again, it's not necessarily clear always. It's, it's, sometimes it's you have to unwrap what is the offer 
and where it can lead you. How do you, what tools do you use to, to look at any opportunity that comes on your, on your, you know, falls in your lap or you are in pursuit of something? How would you know in kind of evaluating the pros and cons? Because I think a lot of people are struggling with that. They, I think why a lot of people potentially stay where they are is the, a, they don't want to take the risk, but also maybe they aren't clear in terms of where the opportunity can go in terms of, of, of uh, position and where potentially can lead to. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, ultimately, it is pretty risky um, because obviously the recruiter is going to try to pitch the new opportunity in the best light to make sure that <laughs> that that you're um, that that you take the position, even if there are things about the role that may not be all that great. Um, and it is a risk. At and the sometimes end of the it, day, right? and sometimes the devil is a no, right? The devil, you know, like you 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 much rather stay. I mean, there's pros and cons, but at least you know what the cons are. And then when you go into a new, un, un, you know, unknown territory, you have no idea how things, and, and, and that was very risky because you jump into a company that did not have a security program, and I'm assuming there was a lot of on-the-job training, OJT, because at the time, probably not a lot of people had to build something like that. You know, there were a lot of unknowns, and the fact that you took ownership over that—that was—that was significant. That was, uh, you know, very high risk, high reward type of position. Right, right. Yeah, it was. But it, that's something that I enjoy doing. You know, I enjoy going to a company, using my previous experience, and building things up from the ground up. Um, that's just kind of my my personality. But going back to your original question of kind of how do I evaluate opportunities and, and make sure that they're right for me. So the other thing that I depend on is my my mentors. I've, I've been lucky to have mentors along the way, um, both formal and informal, that I can reach out to and bounce ideas off of. And I think that's very important for, you know, for everyone to have those people in your life, uh, both personally and, and professionally, to be able to, to bounce ideas off of. And so a lot of times before I accepted an opportunity, while I'm evaluating it, I would approach people in my life that I trust, um, and especially you know folks that are in cybersecurity that have been down this road before, and see what they have to think you know to say about it. And that's been helpful. And I do the same thing. I have people that I that are kind of my proteges now that are early on in their career, and I try to mentor them the best I can and show them some of the pitfalls that I came across so that they don't make the same mistakes. In, in a, let's, let's, again, let's unravel some of the things you mentioned now. So how do you, how do you get a mentor? I think there's a, lot of, there's a lot of misconception about what the mentor's role are. And how do you maintain those relationships? Uh, in, I'm assuming today as mentors, it's peers. There's, there's a whole network of, of I know professional and personal where you rely on not just for decision making as you mentioned for new opportunities but just in general um, just to get other views I mean it's it's we're never in silo and it's very never good to be in a silo when you're you're making decisions otherwise yeah that's a good question I think first of all mentor mentor protege relationships cannot be forced I know a lot of companies they try to set up these mentorship programs and they match people together and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't um, I found that the the best mentors that I've found are the ones that I found myself basically people that I worked with in the past people that I worked for in the past 
I have previous, you know, managers that I count as mentors. I have people that I've worked with as peers that I count as mentors. And um, so those are the folks that I consider my mentors. Um, one of the things that um, I enjoy doing is be being a mentor for others because I know it's helped me in my career and it gives me satisfaction to provide that help to others. It's kind of the concept of passing it along, right? And so even though I have no monetary gains from it, it's not like I'm being paid to be a mentor or anything like that. I have personal satisfaction being able to help other people out. And that's one thing that I would encourage other leaders to do is find people that are early in their career and help mentor them if they're open to being mentored. It'll provide you with a lot of satisfaction in your personal life and your, in your professional life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of the giving back is that, and I, this is the point to say that when you think about mentorship, it doesn't like have to be like you call somebody and say, Oh, do you, do you want to be, can you be my mentor or vice versa? I mean, it's, it can be just naturally is somebody you just pick up the phone, you meet every once in a while and you just pick your brain pick the brains and ask them questions and, and have interest in what it is that they do. And it's a give and take, it's a symbiotic relationship. It's not like, oh, Martin, can I, can you be, call you up one day out of the blue and say, can you, can you be my mentor? Sometimes you don't even have to say you're a mentor. You just happen to have that relationship that you know is somebody you can, you know, uh, consult with and, and be your confidant or, or somebody you can, you can ask for advice. It doesn't have to have the, the title the official label on it, right? It doesn't have to have subtitles when, when we talk about these relationships. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of times it's a friendship. Like you said, there's no label to it. It's somebody that you know that you can bounce ideas off of. I've done this many times where I've come across a challenge in my, not in my career, but maybe a, a certain technical challenge that I need to overcome. And I know somebody that is in this area that can provide me with help. I call them up and I say, hey, I can't get into details. We don't have an NDA in place or anything like that, but let me give you kind of a high level of what I'm going through and let me know what you would do in this situation. And I've never come across a situation where somebody says, no, I'm not willing to help you. People, I think, in general, are, are willing to help, especially if they know you. Yeah, and, and also I would say that you know, we, we all have busy lives and we're, I think the digital economy and we, we're becoming more ADD than ever before. Right. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you, you need to be in constant communication. Even if you are, ha you know, having a conversation once in a blue moon on an ongoing basis, I think the consistency is the key because the, you don't want to be doing something that okay, when you need something or you need an advice or that's the only time you call, you want to have that ongoing relationship. And even if it's sporadic or, you know, but as long as it's has some sort of consistency, whatever that consistency is, because I think people always say, oh, I don't have time for this. Or, you know, I, I, I didn't call that person for a whole year. What, what are they going to think about, you know, if I call them now? And it doesn't matter. We all have, things you know it's called life right things catch on to us and sometimes just time passes but don't be afraid to pick up the phone and have that conversation and stop texting <laughs> it's like text is is impersonal 
uh, you know, you just pick up the phone. We can have it over Zoom or even grab a coffee and meet the person. We're very transient, right? So people like travel, you know. So just make an effort, a cognizant effort to, to actually meet with the person and, again, create that relationship, ongoing relationship over time. I don't know if you can chime into that. Yeah, no, that's important is maintaining the relationship. And um, like you said, not, not, not just going to them when you have a problem, but trying to maintain that relationship, send them, hey, uh, you know, uh, happy New Year's or Merry Christmas or whatever. It just takes a few seconds to, to touch base with them every once in a while and just see how they're doing and all that kind of stuff, just maintaining that relationship. And there are platforms now that make it easy. I mean, LinkedIn, everybody watching your show should be on LinkedIn. Right, um, sharing stories, <laughs> I, I really commenting I on really stories, so. and all that kind of stuff is is important. So, um, that's what I would recommend: is just make sure you you stay in touch with your network because they're there to help you. Yeah, and, and absolutely, it's a great uh, LinkedIn and others is a great place to do so. And it's also, again, you can do a one to many where you create an update. There's very few people actually on these platforms that uh, they create content. Uh, all they do is share or, or like um, and there's something to be said about the content, being content creator of sorts and it doesn't have to be long it can be something that you either wrote or, or recorded or whatever the case may be so let me switch topics for a bit and ask you as you advance your career how do you keep current in terms of of making sure that you know it's such a fast moving target like the knowledge base associated with cybersecurity is so vast and there are ongoing innovation, ongoing areas, uh, you know, whether it's vulnerabilities, whether it's attack vectors, whether it's method, methodologies, just, you know, systems, solutions, vendors. Comp- I mean, there's just so much ongoing on a regular basis. How do you keep current? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, first of all, things are much different now than when I was, you know, early on in my career. There's so many more places where you can gain knowledge, everything from YouTube and Cybrary and all kinds of other online courses and online, you know, knowledge providers. Um, back in the day, we just didn't have that much um, in terms of, you know, places where we can learn different things online for free, nonetheless. Um, additionally, now with, you know, cloud technology, you can spin up a lab in seconds and, and get some hands-on experience. I remember back in the day having to order servers on eBay and setting them up in my parents' basement and, and racking up the, the electrical bill and stuff like that. So <laughs> never in history has it been easier to learn things, has knowledge been more available, and have resources been so cheap and abundant to get some hands-on experience with. Um, so there's really no excuse Martin, is not that to it? do that. Well, there's no excuse. One, I, I completely agree. And you can run, you can buy a thirty-five dollar computer and run a server farm, you know, out of a solar panel today. I mean, it's just it's incredible the the amount of technology you can condense. But isn't it a almost like a double-edged sword, where there is so much available, and then you almost like get lost in terms of what what should you focus on? Do you know what I mean? Like there's just there's just so much available at at no cost and. You get pulled in a different direction. Okay, should, what should I learn? Should I learn pen testing? Should I learn malware reverse engineering? Should I learn incident response? You know, what it is, you know, there's just so much. So what, what do you recommend for someone who's who's trying to figure out how to stay 
on top of the current uh, innovation and then like Wayne Gretzky said you should like skate to where the puck is going to be know where the puck is yeah well first of all you should be doing what you enjoy doing that's number one right so just because Love there's that. money yeah. in a certain area doesn't mean you necessarily want to be doing that because ultimately yeah you could be making a lot of money but if you don't enjoy what you're doing then it's it's not going to be a great experience second of all there's just so much to learn in cybersecurity. Um, you're not going to learn it all so you want to get like an exposure to all the things but then specialize in the areas that again you enjoy and the areas that you're good at so figure out what it is you want to do what you're good at and sometimes you won't know until you get started in you know in different things um, the other thing is relying on on people uh, to help you in certain areas so You'll have situations like I talked about earlier where you don't know the answer, but you know who to go to for the answer. Um, I use a company called Sentry Cybersecurity uh, out of Europe. They're out of Kosovo for my pen testing needs, and they, they help us out you know, with our pen testing. They know a lot when it comes to application pen testing, infrastructure pen testing. So anytime I have a question around pen testing, I refer to them, and they've never let me down. And it goes that way for other areas as well. You know, if if I need a, you know experience in digital forensics, like yeah, I have a certification. I got that a few years ago. A lot's changed since I got that certification. And there's individuals and companies that do it a lot better and specialize in that. So, um, number one, you know, figure out what you want to get into. If you want to be a technologist, if you want to be a subject matter expert, find out what area you want to specialize in and. Try, try to do the best you can in gaining as much knowledge and experience in that area. Um, but if you're on the management side like I am, just understand that you're not gonna know everything about everything. You're gonna have to rely on, on folks to help you through. And to stay current, like I said, there's a lot of different resources out there. Everything from listening to podcasts, which I would recommend. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, especially back in the day when I commuted to work. You know, I'd have an hour and a half commute each way and I'll just listen, I'll grind through podcasts during my commute. Um, and, you know, staying on top of the latest technology, there's so many resources online, but you gotta put the time and effort in to, to kind of stay on top of things. So that's that's what I would say on that topic. Yeah, and it's, it's incredible. And hopefully people would listen to this podcast as well. There's just so much to learn. And as you mentioned, you can double multitask, right? So you are doing something and then you know, you're using the time that you have, uh, and that's why I always envision people listen to or watching these these uh, these events. Is that um, you are able to to absorb some of that, and and you know, a life hack is sometimes to uh, play it at you know one and a half speed or one point two, so you can accelerate and learn you know a faster pace as, as well if you can if you can make it. So, what's your what's your take on um, continuing education? Um, you specifically have done some high-level certifications recently. Uh, one of these, the GCLF, the uh, certification for, for CISO specifically. Maybe if you can expand on that, talk to me about why you decided to, to continue education and what value do you see in, in certification specifically in this particular body? Yeah, absolutely. So certifications, um, for me personally, are a great way to test my knowledge um, I, I try to stay current with my certifications. I've done a bunch of them for my SACA. I've done some of the GIAC ones. And for me, it's just 
a way to challenge myself in, again, staying current and also learning new things and then testing my knowledge with that exam or, or whatever the, the test out is at the end of that certification. Um, the, G, the Global CISO Leadership Foundation, um, I got involved in that, again, to give back to the community. I feel like I have a lot of knowledge in, term, in the area of incident response. Um, so I wanted to share some of that experience, some of that knowledge. And so that's why, you know, when Shirag reached out to me, I, I decided to, to be involved in that effort. And the other thing that they say, I don't know if you heard the saying, is the best way to learn something is to actually do it, right? So it's one thing to read a book or listen to a podcast, but when you actually are able to teach something to somebody, you actually can demonstrate those skills. Um, so I felt that actually verbalizing and, and, and teaching a, a subject like incident response life cycle helped me develop kind of my, my myself in that area as well. That is a, an amazing, uh, per, you know, perception on, on this. I, and I, I have to tell you, even from a personal experience, every time you teach it or any, any topic, you really have to internalize it to a much higher degree. So I highly recommend to anybody who wants to be proficient in topic X is to study first, try to apply it, and then go try to teach it to someone else. Even if it's your family relative, trying to explain to them what incident response is, or find somebody else who doesn't have, you know, they don't have the knowledge that you have and they might want to get into the field. And then you can volunteer. I'm sure there's a lot of boot camps, uh, a lot of um, organizations that require or need volunteers so you can always apply for that and it's part of the giving back and then as you mentioned the aside from creating that network that's so valuable for you is is the ability to really internalize uh you know specifically internalize the, the knowledge that you acquired um so what is the this governing the global CISO governing body like the leadership foundation is it for CISOs by CISOs Talk to me a bit about what's the kind of the, the goal and, and specifically what was appealing for you as, as a CISO. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's um, taking knowledge and experience from current CISOs and applying that to a certification process and a training regimen um, for aspiring or other you know CISOs that are currently CISOs. Um, so one of the things that I like about this approach is it actually is based on not just like book knowledge or theory, but actual practical knowledge of current practicing CISOs. Um, so some of the experiences that are shared throughout these modules are experiences that these folks actually had in the real world. And I think that's, that's very valuable is the actual exposure to real world situations um, as part of this certification process. And why is that needed? I thought that the, the book scenarios always match with the real world, or I guess there's a gap somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it never, it never works out that way in the real world. You know, you can go through a lot of theory in the books and all that, a lot of different scenarios, but the real world is, as you know, very different. So um, you, you encounter different different scenarios in the real world that you just can't account for in, in theory. And so those experiences of those CISOs um, as they're putting their content together is something that I think that's very valuable that's, that, that 
other certifications out there don't offer. Yeah, and as part of that, you also get the chance to rub shoulders with other CISOs and create that open communication and be part of an organization that supports other CISOs. And because it's not enough, I think that, you know, they say it's lonely in the top, you know, because I think once, once you get to a certain level, the only other folks you can, they really understand and get it are people at the same level as you are. And so you have to surround yourself with with that network and then it's tough. It's, it's you know, I mean, there are thousands of CISOs out there because the economy is large and there's a lot of companies, but still to to create that connection and be able to be part of an organization has, has some merit and value by itself, right? Absolutely, yeah. And as a CISO, um, it's a very specific role within the business, right? Um, it's not necessarily a technical role. Uh, it really depends on the size of the company, I guess. But as a CISO, you're working very closely with the business. You're working on things like risk management and business planning and strategic planning. And so, again, this is stuff that you can't necessarily learn out of a textbook or at school. I mean, I've I've gone through academia. I have two master's degrees, not that I'm bragging or anything like that. But there's things that I've learned in my role as a senior, as a security leader that I didn't learn during my MBA. Like my MBA gave me some good knowledge, some good background and some good like general information. But I would say the majority of the stuff that I work with right now, the majority of my knowledge right now is stuff that I learned while working in my current position. Listen, as somebody who's done an MBA as well and you know, doing SWOT analysis and all that stuff for large fortune 500 this when you come to uh real life scenarios as you mentioned there's some some gaps there so let me ask you this and then we wrap up because i know you you gotta go um and i appreciate really much appreciate the time we we see a lot of incidents in the news um and we've seen a shift in the responsibility of the CISO. i mean we can you know the recent uh uber CISO that had to, you know, is probably going to spend some some time in jail, and there there are just just so much associated with now with protecting the enterprise. Um, do you see a shift in the roles and responsibilities of the CISO, and potentially the attitude of of the enterprise as a whole to that role? Yeah, I do. Um, the thing is, security is everyone's responsibility, so. There's this common misconception that, you know, hey, we got a CISO, he's he's gonna take care of our security and we're good to go. And that's just not the case. You know, this the CISO role is an advisor to the business. And so as a CISO, you're responsible for helping the business understand their risks, um, you know, set up a security strategy on how to address those risks and, and, and stuff like that. But ultimately it is a business um it's a business problem that needs to be solved and you need the buy-in from the board of directors and other senior leaders and so as an advisor to the business it's important that the CISO make the business aware of the risks that they have um, so everything from you know having a risk register in place creating a risk committee meeting with senior leadership so they understand um, you know the threats against the company and the vulnerabilities that the company has 
And all those decisions should not be made in a silo. It shouldn't be make it made in a vacuum. It should be made at the company level with other business leaders. And sometimes you have to have difficult conversations, right? And it's the, the difficult piece is that you might consider the almost unlimited attack surface on one hand, uh, the limited resources on the other hand, and then the potentially the the resistance to change of the organization and the leadership that may or may not understand the risks associated with with some of the things that you're bringing up. How do you handle difficult conversations if you had to do them? And at what point in time do you say, okay, you know, I'll pick my battles. It's not worth, you know, fighting over. Yeah. I mean, I like to use the analogy of a road. You know, you have a road, the business is on a road, and they're traveling on this road. You want them to travel in a Ferrari. They want to go fast, but at the same time, you want to make sure that they're safe. Um, you want to make sure that they don't fly off the side of the road. So you put up guardrails so that they stay on the road. You warn them of hazards that are coming up. Maybe you put some speed bumps up in certain areas where there's a hazard, right? You put up signs to show them how fast they should be traveling in certain areas. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the business has to operate, right? And so our job as security leaders is to make them aware of those hazards that are on the road, help put safeguards in place along the road so they don't fly off the side of the cliff, and make sure that they're aware of those, those hazards, right? And that's kind of the analogy that I always go back to is you don't want to be a blocker as a security team, right? You don't want to be the, the person that says no. It's better to approach the situation and, and work with the business on figuring out how they can accomplish their goals in the most secure way possible. It's an interesting analogy. I love it. And, and potentially when there's a ransomware, you can say, hey, we just took a pit stop and uh, we're just changing the things and we're fixing whatever needs to be fixed and we're off to back on the road. Uh, is any, from looking back at the career, and I'll, this may be like the last question. Um, anything that's memorable to you, like any stories that come come to mind? I, maybe it's success, and maybe potentially like you know failures that they were very impactful for you during your your career path. Oh boy, I can't. And I know I put many. you on the spot, Martin. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. Um, I can't think of any one um, you know one failure. I mean, I've had obviously challenges along the way. I think it's worth mentioning that, you know, you want to turn every challenge, every quote unquote failure into an opportunity to do better and to learn something. And as long as you're learning and growing, I think that's the important part. No one's going to be perfect. No one can make the right decision 100% of the time. But as long as you're learning from your mistakes, I think that's, that's the most important part. And and you keep on growing, right? So you keep on growing in your role and your responsibilities and, uh, you know, both in the you know personal and and uh, and professional life, I think we're this is the goal for all of us. Uh, and with that said, Martin, I wanted to thank you very much for joining me today. What's the easiest way for people to reach out to you to learn more about the GCLF certification and just in general, just uh, get some feedback or just provide some feedback? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm on LinkedIn. If you want to look me up, Martin Bialchuk. Um so feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'll be happy to answer any questions that anyone has or give advice. Um, in terms of the Global CISO Leadership Foundation, they also have a, 
a uh, LinkedIn page that I would recommend your your viewers go to visit. And I'm not sure maybe we can add a link into this video somehow so that they can get there in an easier fashion. Yes, but well. there's a lot of information on there. They have a website and they're looking to start the first few classes. So if anyone's interested in signing up for the certification, please um, reach out to them. There's even a coupon code to save you like 20 or 25%. So make sure you take advantage of that coupon code while you're at it. Fantastic. And, and Martin, you are one of the instructors? I'm actually not one of the instructors. I don't have the capacity right now to take that on. I may be in the future. Okay. But um, this, um, this session, I won't be instructing. But there are some excellent instructors that are available. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Martin. I much, much appreciate it. I'm looking forward to, uh, to connecting with you in the future, hopefully in person. It's thank been a so real much, pleasure. David. And thank you very much for sharing the story. And for those who join us today, thank you very much. And I'm uh, looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. And in the meantime, stay safe online as well as offline. And I'll see you uh, next time. Thank you.